welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist. On today's show, we're talking to Julian Jessup. He's the chief economist at the IEA, that's the Institute for Economic Affairs. And we wanted to talk to him all about the proposals they put forward for how to deal with a no-deal Brexit, why a clean break from the EU might not be the worst thing in the world. And those publications caused a lot of controversy, so we're really keen to get to chat to him and understand exactly why they feel that no-deal scenario isn't the disaster that people believe it's going to be. We also wanted to ask him about the recent investigation that Greenpeace and The Guardian did into allegations that the IEA have been offering cash for access to US donors in exchange for meetings with high-level government officials such as Liam Fox or Michael Gove, and even the ability to shape Brexit policy in exchange for their donations. Before we start, don't forget to subscribe to the show if you don't want to miss all the interviews that we're doing at the moment. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, Spotify, The Works. So here's Julian Jessup. So Julian, thanks for agreeing to chat to me. It's lovely to have you uh, on our podcast and it's uh, lovely to host me in the, the IEA offices in London. How likely do you think a no-deal Brexit is at this point? Well, let's just quickly start by defining what no deal means. I, I think it means um, leaving the EU at the end of March next year uh, without the formal withdrawal agreement specified as part of the Article 50 process. So that means, for example, dropping out of the, the single market and the customs union and, and being treated in, in that field, at least the field of trade, uh, by the EU, the same as any other third country would be. Um, but it still allows for the possibility of plenty of other agreements in, in areas where EU membership is not necessarily required. So, for example, uh, an air services agreement that allows planes to continue to fly, uh, continued cooperation in areas like uh, like the nuclear industry and, and security and so on. Um, if that's the no deal we're describing, then I think the chances are still less than 50-50. Um, but those chances are, are rising. Um, it's clear that the various alternatives um, on the table – um, either the latest checkers plan presented by the by the government uh, or some of the suggestions that the EU themselves are, are coming up with are are unacceptable to um, large parts of the the British public so um, I think it's not clear what the alternative to no deal would be um, but there's still time I think for something better to come up than the current government's plans um, and that I think will prevent no deal from happening so I still say the chances will be less than 50 50 well the checkers deal is is I say I think the the thing that has managed to unite the country more than anything else, maybe aside from the World Cup, is that everyone thinks it's a bad idea, which is quite impressive. <laughs> um, maybe Theresa May will come soaring through this as the woman who united us all um, in, a, in opposition to her plan. Uh, but, but just so I think there's, there's, there's a lot in that. I mean, the the, the Chequers plan is, I think, is is clearly unacceptable. I mean, ironically, not just to large parts of the British public, but also I think it's been rejected pretty quickly out of hand by the EU as well. And um, if I were of a of a cynical mind, I would suggest that perhaps this is a a deliberate strategy um, to push us towards Remain or at least Brexit in in name only. And I think maybe that's the way that the the UK is heading that the the two extreme scenarios are becoming more likely, uh, the no deal scenario or something that to all intents and purposes is the same as remain. Uh, and I'm pretty confident that a lot of parts of the, the government and the, and the wider establishment who would prefer us to, to remain, uh, perhaps in name only, but for example, remaining in the single market and the, and the customs union. Um, that I think is okay if you regard Brexit as some sort of ghastly exercise in, in damage limitation. And that certainly minimised the, the costs of, of leaving the EU. But it also shut down almost all of the potential opportunities. So um, the ability to, to do our own trade deals with the rest of the world, to, to lower trade tariffs and trade barriers, 
Um, it means that we couldn't look again at EU regulations that apply to the UK, many of which, of course, are perfectly sensible, but uh, but plenty of which also are, are not appropriate for the for the conditions of the UK economy. Um, so I think that there is a risk that a lot of this is trying to push us towards remaining in. Um, but equally, there's a risk that we end up falling out uh, without the sort of preparation that should have been undertaken over the last year or two. So would you say that the, the discussion around the no deal scenario is kind of in, in a way, much like most of the Brexit debate have been kind of oversimplified as the sort of no deal that we have? Well, certainly an awful lot of Project Fear Mark II going on here. I mean, a lot of the, the Project Fear stories basically describe scenarios that are possible in theory, but, but very unlikely in practice. Uh, and this is because they usually make some combination of, of, of four assumptions, all of which are false. Uh, they assume, for example, that no withdrawal agreement under Article 50 means no deals at all on anything. Um, they assume that the U- EU will ignore all its other legal obligations, including the, the WTO rules. Um, they seem to assume that the EU won't care at all about the impact on, on its own economy. And actually, I think above all and most importantly, they tend to assume that the UK can't act unilaterally uh, to fix problems. So, for example, a lot of concerns about a shortage of um, skilled and maybe even unskilled labour from from the rest of the EU. But migration policy will remain in the hands of the of the UK government. So if there are problems there, the UK government can fix them. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the UK imposing tariffs on imports from the EU, but tariff policy will revert to the UK. We could maintain the, the level playing field required, required under WTO rules by lowering tariffs on trade with the rest of the world, actually making us better off. So um, I think I think Project Fear... There are a few valid points made from time to time, but overall it's exaggerating the uh, potential costs of, of no deal. And I think that's deliberate because there's an agenda here to push us towards remaining in the EU, even if only in some form of um, Brexit in name only, where we maintain all the constraints of the EU with none of the benefits. What would you say to the, the sort of Michael Gove school of thought that seems to be, well, look, let's take what we can get. Let's go with checkers and see if we can make it work. And then a few years down the line, people will realize that we either need to remain in the European Union with the ability to um, have a say in, in the laws and have our veto and have members of the European Parliament, or we need to go sort of further towards a, a harder Brexit to go out and, and sort of move away from from the European project? Well, there's certainly a school of thought that says the, you know, the the important thing is just to leave and to sort out the the details later. And I I sort of have some sympathy with that. Um, But, and it is certainly important that something changes at the end of of, of March 2019. I'd I'd be very concerned if we had some sort of extended transition period with with no time limit that... um, How long would be too long for you? Well, the EU itself has suggested that there should be a hard deadline of the end of 2020, which obviously is the end of their multi-annual financial budgeting process. Mm. And I think that's actually perfectly reasonable. Um, that still gives us a fair amount of time between now and then to, to sort out the, the many practical problems that undoubtedly exist. I mean, for example, I think there are genuine concerns about whether the, um, the British customs system uh, will be able to cope with um, a no-deal Brexit in, in, in March 2019. Um, but an extra couple of years of, of preparation and a bit more money, uh, more investment in some of the various technological solutions, the Irish border problem, for example, I think would be would be valuable. So I think end of, of 2020 would be fine. Um, but whatever the date is, I think essential that there is a fixed date because if there's a uh, there's no limit, then 
it, there's no incentive for a start for either sides to negotiate properly or to uh, to prepare for what happens next. Um, and the longer that this process drags out, the, the, the bigger risk there's some sort of change, whether it's a it's a new government or whatever, um, that leads to a decision to to remain in. So, um, to the extent that I, I would push for us exiting the EU, I think we need to do so with a process that has a specific time limit on any transition or implementation or standstill period um, to make sure at the end of the process we do actually leave. Yeah, it's, well, I think France seems to be more prepared on the customs side than we are with their building sort of extra lanes at, at, at Dover, but then, or sorry, not Dover, at Calais. Um, <laughs> but I don't know, it's, it's, it's difficult to tell how necessary those are when we really have no idea what the, the future relationship is going to be, whether it's going to be like utterly frictionless trade, um, free trade deal, whether we'll remain in the European economic area. I think it's personally, I find it difficult to figure out how, what we should be preparing for when we don't know what it is is going to happen. <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, we, we should be preparing. I think even if you, you know, want us to remain in or, or go for the softest of possible Brexits, I think there are two very good reasons to, uh, to prepare for, for no deal. Uh, one is the, the simple point about negotiating power. You know, if, if, if the EU knows that we will accept any deal on the table uh, because we're not ready for the alternative of no deal, then clearly we're in a lot weaker position and we'll, we'll, we'll get a worse deal as a result. But there's also always, of course, a risk that we fall into no deal by, by accident in, in, in some way, um, in which case not having prepared for it would be hugely irresponsible. Um, and here at least, um, as it happens, I'm, I've always been relatively sanguine about the risks of, of, of no deal um, in terms of the costs to the British economy. But I've actually come a little bit more concerned over the last year or so because it's pretty clear the government in the UK hasn't been making those preparations that are, are required. Uh, and as I said earlier, the more cynically minded would suggest that this is because they want us to, to remain as closely aligned to the, to the EU as possible. So uh, the Remainers in, in, in number 10, in the Cabinet Office, in the Treasury in particular, uh, have been resisting no deal preparations because they they really won't, don't want us to think that option is is a viable one. Um, I think that's that's wrong um, and is actually potentially very damaging in all sorts of ways. Um, so you know, you mentioned uh, the sort of possible economic impacts of an, a no deal Brexit, long term mm -hmm. and short term, sort of very roughly there. Um, do you think that the the, the long term economic gains can be worth what could potentially be maybe? A few weeks of chaos, maybe creeping towards a no deal with um, business sort of looking and moving more things back towards Europe. Do you think pushing towards that sort of scenario is, is worth the long term economic gains to, that we would take sort of hypothetically? Yeah, well, I, I, I personally do. I mean, Brexit, I think, like any investment project, um, involves some costs, uh, many of which are upfront. Uh, and some benefits which are longer term and may be harder to, to quantify now. Um, in the short term, I think there's no doubt that the impact of the Brexit vote on the British economy has been negative. The economy has grown more slowly than it would otherwise have done, uh, due in part to the pickup in inflation as a result of the fall in the pound and also the increased uncertainty holding back business investment. So um, I think it's daft to argue that Brexit hasn't had some short-term costs, and there may also be some additional short-term costs uh, around the the exit process itself, particularly in the event of, uh, of a messy no deal. 
Um, but you know, Brexit is a once in a generation, once in a lifetime decision with costs and, and potentially very big benefits um, extending over a great many years. Um, if, for example, we are able to um, lower trade barriers in, in aggregate with the, the whole of the world, you know, any increase in trade frictions with the EU being more than offset by gains elsewhere, liberalise our economy further, um, those benefits, I think, could, could potentially easily offset the, the short-term costs. Um, and also, a lot of those costs, I think, are being exaggerated. I mean, if, if you look, for example, at the potential costs of increased customs barriers, a lot of the costings have assumed that, you know, life continues in future as it is now. But we know that technology, technology in particular is advancing all the time. Uh, so those costs are, are likely to fall. Um, a lot of the costs associated with a, a no-deal Brexit, frankly, also assume that the UK government does, does stupid things like raise tariffs itself, uh, restrict migration in all sorts of daft ways that harm our own economy, which, again, I think is is wrong. Uh, and on the benefit side, I think those benefits have been underestimated. Um, we know that from any number of free trade deals in the past, um, the initial estimates of the, the gains from free trade um, turn out to be far too low. Uh, you know, free trade is is huge benefit to the uh, to the economy, uh, to consumers in particular. So I think there's there's a risk that a lot of the analysis of the economic impact of, of Brexit, including by the way the Whitehall Whitehall's own Brexit analysis um, leaked earlier this year, uh, tends to significantly overestimate the, the long run costs and significantly underestimate the long run benefits. Um, so you get these, you know, rather scary looking numbers about the impact on on GDP over over fifteen years. But I think. You know the, the magnitude of those numbers is wrong, and actually, quite likely, the, the sign of those numbers is wrong as well. I and mean, the longer that the process goes on, uh, the bigger the net benefits are likely to be. Okay, well, that's honestly, I find it difficult to know how on earth people are going to forecast for something that we've never seen. Really, I, I feel like it's quite a unique scenario. Um, why do you think that the Whitehall predictions were so pessimistic? Um, well, do you think that? This was sort of the civil service by themselves or because I find it interesting that the government who are sort of very quite ardently pro-Brexit were not publicly releasing these, but sort of being so pessimistic about the potential impact on the economy. Or do you think this was more a civil service job than the than a government job? Well, I, I, I used to be a civil servant myself. In fact, I was an economist at the Treasury for a number of years. And I, I, I'm not going to criticise the, the people that have been doing the work here. I think it's an honest attempt to um, improve on the analysis that the Treasury itself published in 2016 ahead of the, the referendum. So, But even the people writing the reports themselves haven't been claiming that it's the, it's the last word or that it proves anything about the, the long-term impact of, of, of Brexit. I mean, if you actually read what they have published, it's full of caveats and uh, doubts and concerns and areas for, for, for further work. All they've really been able to do at the moment is, is is make a stab based on existing models of what the impact of, of, of Brexit might be. So they've very much taken off the shelf models like a uh, like the Norway deal or uh, something similar to, to what Canada was able to achieve in terms of a free trade deal. What they haven't really done in any detail is, is model what the, the UK government policy actually is, which is a <laughs> Uh, or at least until recently, was far bolder than that. It was a comprehensive Canada plus, plus, plus deal that included all sorts of things the Canada deal didn't. It included things like streamlined customs arrangements, which the Whitehall Brexit analysis doesn't allow for. It included new developments like mutual recognition in financial services. Um, and it allowed for a, a, a transition period to smooth over the, the adjustment. And um, I think if you apply you know, Whitehall's Brexit analysis to that sort of scenario, it would come up with much more positive or at least less negative numbers. 
Um, but even then, I, th- I think these sort of conventional approaches underestimate the, you know, the benefits of things like free trade. These things are very hard to, to, to quantify, um, whereas the costs are, in the short term, at least relatively certain. So I appreciate these exercises are difficult. But if we're looking at, I suspect if we're looking back at Brexit in 10 or 20 years' time, we'll be wondering what the fuss is about. You know, the UK economy will be more open, more dynamic, healthier. <laughs> uh, our relations with the EU will, will be perhaps even better than ever. I, I don't think in the long run we'll be looking back at this and saying what a disaster it was. Just very quickly on that on that point, do you think that being out of the European Union and not being the kind of thorn in their side of their European project means that they'll be sort of more amicable towards us? Mm. Well, what, what I would hope is that outside the EU, we could set a good example for the EU itself. Um, and I don't think there's any reason why we have to have to be enemies after this. I mean, the you know, reality is the British public have voted to go in a different direction and um, I think we should we should respect that. Um, we've got certainly no intention of um, of destroying our relationship with the with the EU, I and mean, we you know we should be making positive suggestions to them about what the future relationship should should be. Um, after all, the EU will remain our our biggest single trading partner uh, for the foreseeable future. Its importance is diminishing, but it, it's still very large. Uh, and obviously, in terms of all sorts of non economic activities, you know, cultural, scientific. And so on and so on. We're continuing to have very close links with the with the EU, uh, plus security and defence cooperation, and so on and so on. So, I, I think it's wrong to approach this as a, as, as them and us. Um, even on the economics, of course, the EU has strong vested interest in in making sure that that trade two ways continues um, on the best possible basis after after Brexit. So, um, no, I, I, I don't re- regard this as a catastrophic risk to our relationship with with the rest of the EU. Uh, but hopefully. You know, if we head off in a in a more liberal d- direction, lowering trade barriers to the rest of the world, um, rethinking a lot of the regulations the EU imposes, and we turn out to be stronger, healthier economy as a result of that, then maybe that's a positive signal, positive model for the rest of the EU to follow as well. Well, I, like you said, it's, it's difficult to sort of envision exactly what's going to happen. So I mean, you, can, you can be optimistic or pessimistic about it, whichever way you want to you want to look at it, whichever sort of ideological lens you're going to look at it through but um before uh you mentioned sort of the the migration aspect of skill shortages that people are, are worried about and how that would eventually depart um control immigration policy would return to down street do you think that there's um a, a paradox between the kind of anti-immigration sort of more isolationist strain of some of the brexit vote in contrast to the free market global britain idea that you know boris johnson and jacob reese mogg are very fond of uh, putting forward well i mean certainly there's there's a there was an anti-immigrant vote uh as part of the uh, support for for leave i think that, that nobody would would seriously deny that but um i think to to regard that as a significant factor behind the the vote, or, or indeed something that should guide future policy, is simply not giving the British public enough credit. I think the, you know, the majority of the British public are in favour of the the right to control migration more than we have at the moment. We don't control our, our borders as a as a member of the EU as much as we would do if we're outside. Um, but almost everybody recognises that the benefits of um, EU migrants in, in all sorts of areas, whether it's the whether it's the NHS or, or science or the city and so on and so on. So I, I don't think that a vote to leave is is necessarily means that you impose you know, draconian controls on on migration uh, between the EU uh, and the UK. And indeed, from a 
free market, free trade point of view, of course, there's there's no reason why why you should. Those of us who argued for for Brexit because of a sort of free market agenda would certainly not sign up to the sort of you know arbitrary immigration controls that. Uh, the current government, it seems to be supporting a sort of arbitrary targets for reducing migration below 100,000 and so on. That, that, that is simply not part of the, the free market agenda. So I think what, what we're trying to argue for is the, maybe the option of controlling migration, but not necessarily actually doing so in ways that are clearly harmful to the UK economy, but also UK society more widely. Yeah, honestly, I, I, I never believe a word of the tens of thousands rhetoric. They've had seven years in government. And if, if, they genuinely believed that there was a far too many immigrants coming to Britain. About it varies, but about half our half of migration comes from outside the EU. And I feel like if, if it was such a massive problem, and their goal was legitimately tens of thousands, they probably would have uh, attempted to curb migration from from outside the EU as well as you know the Cameron's sort of emergency break thing uh, that he attempted to negotiate pre-referendum. I just feel that the tens of thousand figure is. Is, is sort of a platitude that doesn't really mean much. But at the minute, we're, we're sort of, we've got the checkers plan on the table, but as you mentioned before, it's been rejected. Um, do you think there's a, a possibility that we could still get in the minds of, of Brexiteers a, a good Brexit? Could we like push back on, on the checkers plan and, and sort of go for something that's a, less restrictive in terms of um, our ability to sign trade deals with other countries? Yes, I do. I mean, the- I'm, I'm wary of making any predictions about politics. I mean, certainly <laughs> a, a, a few years ago, it was considered very unlikely that the UK would, would vote to, uh, to leave the EU in the first place. I mean, who would have predicted the rise of, of Corbyn? Um, I mean, there are lots of things that could change simply on the, on the political front. Um, uh, but also it's, it's worth stressing that it, you know, we, we haven't really yet started the negotiations proper. <laughs> On what the future relationship is, is is going to be. I mean, the, the government has convinced itself that um, the EU is only going to accept one or two proposals. But until we ourselves actually make formal proposals and, in particular, put text on the table, who knows? Also, of course, the, to the extent there hasn't been any negotiation, it's been done at the level of the of the EU Commission uh, rather than at the level of national governments. I mean, it's it's. You know, is Germany really wanting to to sign up to something that would damage supply chains that benefit both German producers as well as as well as British ones? Do do French farmers really want to have restrictions on their ability to sell us cheeses and and, and wines and so on? I I think even this close to to March twenty nineteen, an awful lot can change both domestically and in terms of you know what the position of the of the EU, including the EU nation states, turns out to be. No, there's been um, a reasonable amount of talk about um, the post-Brexit US free trade deal. Uh, why is taking a trade deal uh, with the US, who have quite openly said that we would be taking their rules on a majority, if not all of the the reg- or all of the the goods that we would be trading or services? Why, why is that better than? The free trade deal we currently have with with Europe, with, the, with where we take Europe's rules. Why? Is well, it just so I, I, in all of these things, I never think it's either or. I mean, the, the the ideal outcome would be a free trade deal with the EU and a free trade deal with the the US. Um, you don't, you know, lots of countries have free trade deals which are different uh, with different trading partners. It's not one or the other. As far as what former a trade deal with the US might take, um, 
I think there's an assumption that it's it, again that it's all or nothing. That you know have to accept everything that the U.S. offers uh, and therefore apply the trade deal to all sorts of economic activities, rather than just doing it bit by bit. If we if we even if we take something like agriculture, I mean clearly there's a lot of resistance to uh, to some things that the the U.S. does. So dreaded chlorinated chickens and hormone injected beef. Honestly, and so on. I think yeah, I think the beef yeah. is more of a problem than yeah. the chicken. I mean, to be to be honest, I personally have, have no problem with, with 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 that at all. You know, based on science and you know the proportionate controls of, of, of what's good for human and animal welfare. But let, let's assume that we want to take that off the table. That's still no reason why we can't do a partial trade deal. Um, you know, covering I don't know whiskey and and, and salmon, for example, mm. and in other areas, you know. Uh, uh, government procurement, for example, why we can't do a partial trade deal that allows British firms to compete for US government contracts and and vice versa. So, so it doesn't have to be everything. I think the sensible approach will be almost like a series of, of trade deals, and that those areas which are relatively uncontroversial, where there's a uh, you know the common interest in, in in boosting trade that both sides can see. It doesn't have to be all or nothing, and it doesn't have to be the US or the EU. One last question, if you've got time. You can be as brief as you like on this. Yeah. Um, what would you say to suggestions that, or what concerns that people would have given the, the Greenpeace and, and Guardian piece that was brought out that sort of wealthy US donors might have quite a lot of influence in the in the trade deal that we might strike with the US? Yeah, well, I, I think those sort of stories, frankly, are hugely flattering. The idea that our our tiny income, which is significantly less than that of Greenpeace, for example, is able to buy uh, disproportionate special influence in, in Whitehall is, is, is clearly nonsense. I mean, the, the, the reality is that all our work is is research and, and, and analysis driven. So, you know, we, we publish research. We're flattered if ministers and officials want to uh, want to listen to it. But, you know, we we don't have any special influence purely because of our, our, our quite small income. Um, I mean, the reality is that you know we're making the case for a free market Brexit. Uh, others are making the case for for a different form of Brexit. Um, if we had as much power as some people seem to think, then I doubt that developments over over the last year or so would have gone in the direction that they seem to be going, which is towards Brexit in, in name only. So, um, you know, I think those stories are a little bit fanciful, frankly, conspiracy theory theorizing. <laughs> Well, thanks very much for, for chatting to me. It's uh, been a real pleasure. It's always great to get the opinion and thoughts of someone who is um, opposed or giving slightly different views on things. And I really enjoyed your sort of definition of uh, no deal and why the discussion that we're having about it is, has been uh, a little bit wrong. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much for, for chatting to us, Julian. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget you can subscribe to us on Facebook, on Twitter. You can follow the show on iTunes, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the next episode we're going to be releasing is over the weekend. It's going to be with Elaine McCrory, who was asked to speak at the We Deserve Better rally in Belfast and then has unfortunately been asked not to appear now. So there was a lot of controversy and we want to get a chance. So make sure you subscribe if you don't want to miss that. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>